Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. It's good to be with you all this morning and... uh... Before I begin, I just want to say thank you all for praying for us, for Taylor and I, um, as we continue to raise support. I uh, can't tell you how much it means to have a church that only supports you uh, in the ministry, but also devotes itself to praying. I feel like the giving is sometimes the easier part of the two, and that praying is the harder, at least for me that is. Um, so I just want to say on a personal note, thank you all for your continued support. Please continue to keep praying for us. Uh, it seems that the, the closer we get, the harder it gets. So I don't know what's up with that dynamic, but uh, just always seems to be how it is from every missionary I know. That seems to be how it goes. But as we continue worshiping together this morning, I invite you to open me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verse 8. Just one verse, verse 8. 2 Timothy 2, verse 8. And the title of the sermon this morning is Remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. Let's see now what Paul writes to his young colleague under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 2 Timothy 2 verse 8. Paul writes, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Rehydrate, replenish, refuel. Those three words make up one of the most famous slogans that Gatorade has ever put out. Um, Gatorade drinks are delicious. I love Gatorade. Um, As much as I love Gatorade, they're not for what I like to do with it, which is sitting and watching football on the couch and enjoying them. Um, But they're delicious. That's evidenced by the fact you can buy those drinks everywhere, from the grocery store to a vending machine at school to a concession stand at a high school football game. You can get Gatorade pretty much anywhere. But as delicious as it is, it was originally designed to fuel athletes on the field or on the court. See, Gatorade was created in the summer of 1965 by a team of scientists working in conjunction, I might cuss here, so forgive me, with the University of Florida football team. Marcus is wearing his Georgia shirt today, so yeah. I'm a a Georgia fan, just to be clear. But the University of Florida football team, they were having trouble keeping their athletes sustained on the field, so they teamed up with these scientists to create a drink that would help their athletes continue uh, and sustain play. So this drink helped restore the electrolytes of athletes, which would in turn help them keep on keeping on on the field. Gatorade was designed as fuel to keep going. Well, in our verse this morning, in this section of the Apostle Paul's final letter to his young colleague, Timothy, we're provided with the fuel that, provides, that propels us as Christians to faithfully carry out the commission the Lord Jesus has given us. Timothy, at this point, was leading the church at Ephesus, which Paul helped establish. 
Paul, on the other hand, just a short time later, according to church tradition, would be beheaded for the faith by the order of the emperor Nero. And so as Paul is nearing his martyrdom, he writes what we could really label as the last will and testament of the apostle Paul to his young colleague, Timothy. And all throughout the letter, Paul urges Timothy ultimately toward one thing, to press on for the cause of King Jesus. Over and over again, he's urging and pushing Timothy to keep on going. In chapter 1, verse 6, he reminds Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God. In chapter 1, verse 8, he urges Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. In the verses immediately preceding the verse we just read, here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, he uses a few different images to convey to Timothy the need to keep going. He calls him to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, to labor like a faithful farmer, to keep running like a focused athlete. Over and over again with these pictures, he's trying to tell Timothy one thing, keep on going, stay in it, press on in the mission, press on proclaiming Christ. And here in chapter two, verse eight, Paul tells Timothy and us, Ultimately, what is going to fuel and sustain us as we go about in the Great Commission? You see, although our role is different than Timothy's, though our context is different than Timothy's, the mission we have been given is not. Like Timothy and like the church at Ephesus in the first century, we too, brothers and sisters, have been called by Christ to make disciples of all nations by proclaiming the good news of his life, death, and resurrection for the salvation of every sinner who will trust in him. That's the mission of every Christian in every age, no matter the context, no matter the stage of life they are in. Regardless of how long we've been followers of Christ, regardless of what our role may be within this local body, this is our collective mission. So although these words were originally first read by Timothy, first given to to Timothy, church, these words are for you as well. So what is our fuel? Paul tells us in the first three words of verse eight, remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. Interesting note that this is the only time this particular imperative appears in either of Paul's letters to Timothy. The, 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 the command to remember, only time it is mentioned in the letter is here. Timothy, this is what I want you to remember as you go out in ministry. This is what I want you to remember as you seek to proclaim Christ to your people and to the world around you. This is what I want you to remember. Remember Jesus Christ as preached in my gospel. Remember the one you proclaim. This kind of seems strange to us maybe a little bit. Timothy, after all, was a preacher. I mean, Paul, of course I remember Jesus. He probably preached the gospel countless times. There's a reason why Paul placed Timothy to lead the church in Ephesus in his absence. But yet Paul says, Timothy, remember Jesus Christ as preached in my gospel. Why? Because Timothy, like us, though saved by Jesus, was still broken by sin. If you read this letter a little bit, you see that Timothy was constantly looked down upon for his youth. He was a young man in his probably uh, 20s, maybe early 30s by this point. But he was looked down upon for his youth. He struggled with physical ailments. 
Paul has to exhort him to flee youthful passions. In other words, he's just like one of us. Facing pressures from the world, facing temptation from our flesh and from the enemy, being bombarded with physical ailments of various kinds. All of us go through these types of trials in life and it wears us down. We're not super saints. No such thing, this side of glory. Every saint, every person whose hope and trust are in Christ remains a sinner this side of heaven, living in a world cursed by sin, battling against our sin nature, struggling against our rebellious desires. And as such, we lose focus. As such, we get worn down. As such, we get weighed down. So what keeps us going? Remembering the one we're called to proclaim. To faithfully proclaim Jesus, we must first remember Jesus. That's Paul's message in this verse, and that's my prayer for us this morning. To faithfully proclaim Jesus, we must first remember Jesus. In this verse, Paul calls us to remember two central truths about Jesus. They're found right in the middle here of verse 8. He says, Timothy, remember Jesus Christ as preached in my gospel. What's this good news about Jesus that you want us to remember, Paul? Who's the Jesus you want us to set our eyes on and focus on? Two things. First, he says, remember Jesus is risen from the dead. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus, church, is a historical fact. It's not a great story. It's not a myth. It's not a fable. It's a fact. It's an event that's happened in history. On the morning of the third day after his death on a Roman cross, Jesus was raised from the dead. We find it proclaimed to us in all four gospel accounts, which declare to us not only the fact that he rose, but these four gospel accounts also provide to us multiple occasions on which the risen Christ was seen by his disciples and by others. In Matthew's gospel, there are two post-resurrection appearances. Mark's gospel contains one, Luke's gospel contains three, and John's gospel contains four. In Luke's uh, second volume of his two-volume work, the book of Acts, Luke recounts to us in chapter one the appearance of the risen Christ to his disciples on the day of his ascension. But perhaps the most astonishing post-resurrection appearance is the one that Paul provides us with in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, where he tells us that the risen Christ appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And here's the key part. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And that little tag there at the end is Paul's way of saying, if you need these references, if you need these eyewitnesses, I can point you to them. I can tell you who's not there, who's not living anymore, and I can tell you the ones who are alive. I can point you to them. All this to say, the Bible tells us again and again and again that Jesus is risen. The resurrection is true. But Paul isn't simply reminding Timothy of the facts because the resurrection isn't merely an event. The resurrection carries with it a twofold proclamation. On the one hand, the resurrection proclaims to us that Christ has accomplished all that is necessary for our redemption. Jesus Christ came into the world, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, to save sinners. Matthew 1.21 tells us that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. He came on a mission to bring salvation to his people. 
being born in Adam, all of us have failed to measure up to God's demand for our lives. God's demand that is that we love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He requires us to love him perfectly and perpetually. But none of us have. Not a single one of us. And because that is true, on our own, we stand guilty before God on our own. But God, out of his great love for us, sent his son, and his son came and lived the perfect life we can never live. Throughout his life, Jesus was holy, innocent, unstained from sinners. He and he alone fulfilled the demand of God's law. There's never been a moment for you and I where we've fulfilled the righteous requirement of God. But for Jesus, there was never a moment where he failed to meet the perfect requirement of God. He lived the life we never could. And at the cross, he took our place and died the death we deserved. The sinless Savior, the righteous righteous Savior was condemned as a sinner. The law keeper was regarded as a lawbreaker. He was regarded by the Father as if he had lived our lives. The hell we deserve for our sin, the hell that we were bound for, was poured out on Christ at the cross in full. And because the hell we deserved was poured out on him, there is none that remains for us anymore. In Christ, we have been freed from our guilt. No condemnation is left for the believer because it was placed upon Christ. Not only that, but in Christ, we have now been declared righteous by the Father. Christ took our guilt of the cross, and in return, in him, we have received his righteousness. Just as he was regarded at the cross as if he he lived our lives, so too we are now regarded as if we have lived his perfect life. We've not only been stripped of our filthy rags, but we've been clothed in his perfect righteousness. And the Father, on that basis... Because he has taken away our filthy rags, given us the perfect righteousness of his son, he declares us righteous and welcomes us in forever as his dearly beloved children. As Paul says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But the only reason all of that wonderful news is true for us is because the tomb is empty. No resurrection, no forgiveness, no righteousness, and no peace. No resurrection means that we would still be under our condemnation, bound for hell with no hope of redemption. We would be doomed. Christ's work would be no work at all. Why? Because it would have shown that he was a phony. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, it would have shown that he was not the eternal son of God. It would have shown that he was not our sinless, righteous substitute. Instead, all it would have shown us is that he was a sinner born in Adam under the curse of the fall like you and I. We would have no mediator. Indeed, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith, believer, is futile and you are still in your sins. Christ has been raised. The tomb is empty and therefore... We are assured that he is the son of God. We are assured that he lived the life we could not and died the death we deserved. And we are assured that in him, forgiveness, justification, and reconciliation with God really belong to us. As Paul says to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 3.16, Jesus was vindicated by the spirit of his resurrection. 
He is vindicated, declared to the world to be who he is and to have accomplished what he came to accomplish. In other words, I love the way, as S. Lewis Johnson puts it, he said, the resurrection is God's amen to Christ's it is finished. Done, accomplished, no more work to do because the tomb is empty. But the resurrection not only proclaims to us that our redemption has been accomplished, the resurrection also proclaims to us that our redemption will be consummated. The end of all things, the tying of the bow, as it were, on our redemption will come one day. In his resurrection from the dead and his conquering of the grave, Christ did so on our behalf. He rose for us, and by doing so, by rising bodily from the grave, Christ guarantees to us that we will one day rise as well. While it is true that because of Christ's resurrection to be absent from the bodies, to be present from the Lord, praise, praise God for that, that isn't our, ultimately our hope. Our ultimate hope is resurrection life in both body and soul. New glorified resurrection life. That's the ultimate hope of the resurrection. Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 22 says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Just as we inherited death in Adam, so now because of our union with Christ, we have inherited final resurrection, which we will experience at Christ's return. A new life, imperishable life, free from the effects of sin, free from sickness, free from decay, free from death, free from the indwelling sin that right now remains in us. We will dwell with our Savior forever, as we sang about earlier. All because the tomb is empty. I love the way John Calvin puts it. He says, in the resurrection of Christ, we all have a sure pledge of our own resurrection. Guarantee, proof, the empty tomb is a constant reminder of what awaits us. Christ rose and we will too. Thomas Watson speaking on this certainty said this, we are more sure to arise out of our graves than out of our beds. A certain redemption, a certain hope because of the empty tomb. And Paul tells Timothy and us, remember this empty tomb. Why? Because it's the only way you will proclaim the good news of the empty tomb. Not his love for the church he served, not his burden for the unsaved in Ephesus, not the command to faithfully preach the gospel. All that's important to be sure. But none of that's going to fuel Timothy to keep on preaching the risen Christ as he encounters trials of various kinds, as he battles temptation, as he struggles against sin, as he encounters persecution from the culture around him, or even as he faces opposition within his church. None of those things will fuel him when hard times come. The only thing that will fuel this man in the church he served to faithfully proclaim Christ is Christ himself. Brothers and sisters, it's the same for us. You and I are going to fail as we seek to follow Christ. We've all failed this morning. 
None of us have loved God as he requires us to. We'll continue to struggle against our sin. We may decline to share the gospel when we have clear opportunities. Our love for the lost around us may grow cold. Our passion for seeing the gospel go forth may waver. We may succumb to doubts and fears we have as we seek to be faithful. We may grow absolutely exhausted from our life's circumstances. But the good news is, Christ is risen. And so to press on preaching Christ risen to the world around us, we remind ourselves that he is risen. The best news that could ever be heard is the fuel itself. If we're called to proclaim it, we must first remember it. I'm reminded of when the apostles Peter and John were arrested for preaching Jesus and they're brought before the Jewish Sanhedrin in Acts 4 and they're commanded to stop preaching about Jesus. I get, I'm not confrontational. I would have been like, okay, just being honest for a moment. Their response though, Acts 4.19 Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In the face of threat from the public authorities, they say, we got to keep talking about them. Now remember just a few weeks before in the day of Christ's resurrection, what are these two men doing? They're with the other disciples in a locked door, behind a locked door, fearing for their lives. They killed Jesus, they're coming for us next. Now a few weeks later, boldly preaching Jesus, telling the authorities who tell them to stop, we can't stop. What is propelling them to keep going? The things they have seen and heard, the life, death, and resurrection of their Lord. It was the fuel for their proclamation And church, it's the fuel for us as well. To press on for Jesus, to proclaim Jesus, we must first remember he's risen from the dead. But secondly and finally, Paul says here in this verse, not only to remember Jesus has risen from the dead, but that he is the offspring of David. He says, remember Jesus is the offspring of David. In referring to Jesus by this title as the offspring or the descendant of David, Paul is pointing back to the promise God made to King David during his reign as king. This promise we often refer to as the Davidic covenant is found in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 13, where the Lord promises this to David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, David, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Note what is promised. A descendant from the line of David who will build a dwelling place for Yahweh. A place where Yahweh will manifest his presence and dwell among his people. I.e. a temple. And that king who establishes this temple is going to reign forever. Now this promise had with it a temporary fulfillment meaning it was kind of fulfilled, but not really fulfilled. It was was fulfilled typologically, we would say, or parabolically. 
The immediate successor to David was Solomon, who did build a house for the Lord. He did build a temple, and he reigned, but his kingdom came to an end. His reign came to an end. The temple was eventually destroyed. Kings came after him. Eventually, they rebuilt the temple. That temple was destroyed, too, by the Romans. So in a sense, it was fulfilled, but the immediate successors to David weren't really the fulfillment of that. Those temples that were built weren't really the fulfillment of the promise. But now in Jesus, Paul says, the promise has come to pass. The wait is over. The true and eternal king has come and he is reigning. By the way, this is nothing new, Paul declares either. We love that famous Christmas passage in Luke 1 where the angel appears to Mary and it's such a wonderful scene, right? Remember what the angel says to her? Mary, knowing her her Old Testament, wouldn't have known exactly what he was saying. Luke 1, verses 31 to 32. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Or consider how Matthew begins his gospel account. He refers to Jesus as the son of David. Paul's doing the same here. He's reminding Timothy and us that Jesus is this promised Davidic king who will build an eternal temple and rule over God's people forever. And we don't await the beginning of this kingdom either. The kingdom is not to be established. It has been established. The kingdom of Christ has been inaugurated. Christ, having risen from the dead, having won the victory for his people, has ascended. I love that Jeff's been preached through Hebrews because Hebrews tells us this over and over again, that he's ascended and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he sat down to rule and reign, having been given all authority in heaven and on earth. There's nothing in all the universe that's outside of the grasp of King Jesus. Right now, he reigns. This morning, he reigns. But it isn't as if Jesus has possession of power and authority he didn't have before. As the eternal son of God, he's always possessed all power and authority. He didn't pick it up at some point in time because God doesn't lack anything. God doesn't gain new power. He's not like a superhero that levels up. To him belongs all power and authority. He declares the end from the beginning. And we see the divine power of Jesus over and over again throughout his earthly ministry. In the midst of a storm, he calms the storm by simply telling the storm to shut up, right? At the pool of Bethesda, he heals the lame man, not by stirring up a potion and giving it to him, but telling him, get up. Or when he raises Lazarus from the dead, he simply tells the dead man to come out of the tomb, and he does. Over and over again, we see that Jesus possesses all authority over everything. So it isn't as if he received new power and authority upon his resurrection. Rather, his present reign is for the purpose of completing his mission, of gathering in his people for whom he lived, died, and rose again. Remember, as the promised son of David, he's building a temple. David was promised that his descendant would build a temple, a dwelling place for God, One that would stand forever. And Jesus is doing that. Not a temple made of brick and mortar or stone, but a temple composed of people from every tribe, 
tongue, and nation. Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone of that temple. He's the rock upon which his church is built. And he's gathering in that church. Through the preaching of the gospel, as the gospel goes forth, the king is constructing his temple. He's gathering in his lost sheep to himself. And he will complete this work. As Jesus declares in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. By the way, that's not the image of hell going on the march against Jesus on the offensive. That's the image of Jesus going on the offensive and hell is powerless to stop him. How can anything stop him, by the way? He has all authority over nature, all authority over angels, all authority over demons, all authority over the devil, all authority over human governments and all earthly powers, and all authority over time and history itself. There is nothing in all the universe that is outside the sovereign rule of King Jesus. He reigns, he is on the move, and he will finish the mission of building his church. And when he does, this king will descend to reign forever. Revelation 1-7 tells us that one day he is coming with the clouds and every eye is going to see him. Even those who pierced him. All of Christ's enemies will be dealt with. From the unbelieving, unbelieving of all of history to our great enemy Satan and all the demons. They will all be forever cast into eternal judgment as will death itself as Christ makes all things new. He will usher in a new heavens and a new earth. And he will gather us, his glorified people, raised to new resurrection life, to dwell with him in this new creation as his temple, as his dwelling place forevermore. The Apostle John describes to us a glimpse of this future to us. Listen to what he writes in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 3. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride or adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. God dwelling in the midst of his people in the fullness of his glory forever. That's our hope, church. There is much we may not have completely figured out this side of glory, especially with regard to Christ's return. One thing we know about the end times is that everyone has different opinions on that. It's okay. It's not a essential. What we do agree on, however, is that he is coming. It's okay if you don't have all the answers. It's okay if you don't have a chart with all the different options. The Christian confession throughout the ages has been, he came, he conquered, he ascended, and he's coming again. All this church is in view when Paul writes that Jesus is the offspring of David. He is the king, he's the reigning king, he will reign forever as king. And the Holy Spirit, through the pen of Paul, called Timothy, and today calls us to remember this truth day by day till we make it home. We confess Jesus is Lord, we confess that he's our king, but we must remember it if we're going to proclaim him. Think about it. Timothy's ministry wasn't characterized by nonstop conversions. Sometimes we over-romanticize the age in which the apostles lived. Later on in this letter, Timothy 
is told by Paul, quite frankly, that your church is going to get tired of your preaching. They're all going to leave. They're, they're going to go to people who give them what they want to hear. He tells Timothy again and again of how the culture is, the culture around him in, in, in Ephesus. All over the place, Timothy had a hard time. There were false teachers seeking to gain footholds among the churches. The pagan culture in which they lived was becoming increasingly hostile toward the church. His mentor is about to be killed for his faith. Yeah, living on mission for Jesus wasn't daisies and roses for Timothy. It's not going to be for us. We may have gospel conversations that we are eager about that just seem to go nowhere. We may see people reject Christ. We may see people mock the gospel. We may see friends alienate or distance themselves from us because of our faith. We may endure trials at work for speaking about Jesus. We may suffer great loss in the years to come with whatever direction our country goes and we don't know. It may come to a point where you're alienated by your family members or you lose friendships. It may come to a point where you lose your job. It may come to a point where we lose our homes, our freedoms, or even our lives. I don't know, and you don't either. That is happening in many parts of the world, though, at this very moment, and we shouldn't assume that it won't happen here. But we don't know. This life is always presented to us as an unknown path. We don't know what will happen in the next 10 minutes, let alone the next 10 years. But while we don't know the immediate future, we do know the ultimate future. And that's all we need to know. The mission will be accomplished. The church will be built. Christ will come again. And we will dwell with him forever. That will happen. What an encouragement that is. In other words, what Paul's reminding us is the mission is not on our shoulders to do. God has not called us to bring about the results that he himself has promised he would bring. And think about the tangible reminders we see all around us. Every Lord's Day, we pray for other local churches in our community. We pray for brothers and sisters around the world serving in hard places. Just think about this simple fact. We're nearly 2,000 years removed from the writing of this letter. And here we are, an ocean removed, two millennia removed, reading this letter together in a building as Christians. I'm assuming most of us, if not all, are Gentiles. All that to say, he's on the move. And he's building his church. So remember that he is risen. Remember that he's the offspring of David. The tomb is empty and the throne is occupied. As I close, I have a mug at home, coffee mug. I have too many coffee mugs. We actually just got rid of some of them at a yard sale, much to my chagrin. But at home, I still have a mug that says, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. (laughs) Of course, y'all can blame Taylor for that. She got me that mug. Of course, that's a parody poking fun at the way Philippians 4.13 is commonly misunderstood. The verse itself says, I can do all things through him, through Christ who strengthens me. When I was in high school, we used to tape our wrists because that's what linemen do. I guess we thought it would help us not break our wrists. I don't know. But I would write the verse on my wrist for a game because I'm thinking I can, I can get pancake blocks because of Jesus. <laughs> and to be clear, he does give us the strength in the heart. I, I get all that. But if you read the whole section, it has nothing to do with that. 
Listen to what Paul says right before verse 13 and verse 12. He says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. Not, the, not that God gets me out of everything, but that I've learned to persevere through it. Why? Because I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Christ sustained Paul in his mission. Christ strengthened Paul to keep going. And now he's at the end of his life and he urges Timothy and he urges all who read this letter to do the same, to look to Christ, not to ourselves, not to our circumstances, but to look to him. So brothers and sisters, while I pray that we would be devoted passionately to the Great Commission, we would be passionate about sharing the gospel, we would be super concerned about the souls of those in our community, first and foremost, I pray that we would be a people who remember, that we would keep on keeping on what we do every Lord's Day, taking the Lord's Supper, remembering Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for us, remembering his life and death as we open the word, remembering his life, death, and resurrection as we sing together, and that that will overflow into the way we live our lives each and every day, looking to him and him alone. That we would remember him risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as proclaimed to us in the gospel. But if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, and what I mean by that is your hope and trust are not in Jesus alone to deliver you from sin and make you right with God, then know two things. First, you will never be delivered from your guilt on your own. Like the rest of us, apart from Jesus, you stand guilty. And being guilty, you will one day answer to him for your rebellion. On your own, you have no chance of changing that. You are guilty, all you await is your sentencing. But second, know also that this Jesus who is your judge, who is the king over all, is mighty and willing to save every sinner like you and me who will trust in him. He's not just our savior. He's not just the savior of those who have believed. He's the savior of all who will believe. Whoever trusts in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Whoever comes to him, he will never cast out. In him and in him alone, you can be forgiven by God of all your sins. You can be declared righteous by God, but it's only in Christ. Trust in him and in him alone. If you want to know more about that, Find one of our elders after the service. Find one of our deacons. Ask the person sitting next to you. You are in the best place to have questions about Jesus. But we pray that you will trust in him because he is risen from the dead and he is the offspring of David. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you, Lord, that these realities are true. Lord, this is the only thing in this letter you've called us to remember. Not that we shouldn't remember other things, Lord, but this is what matters most. This is the foundation, Lord, and without a foundation, everything crumbles. So, Lord, if we would be faithful, may we first be a people that remembers. May we turn our eyes upon the Lord Jesus, not just today, not just in this moment, but every moment of every day. And, Lord, I pray that if there are any among us this morning who are not looking to Christ alone as their only hope, that you would... Lord, do whatever it takes to bring them to a saving knowledge of him. And Lord, we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.